the partition of British India in 1947 is one of the defining events of the modern era. 70 years later, it is still influencing and shaping the world. Here at the Harvard University South Asia Institute, we present a special series of seminars in which leading scholars explore its continuing impact. Sunil Amrit is the Mera Family Professor of South Asian Studies at Harvard. Here, Professor Amrit looks back at the history and context of partition. For approximately the first five decades after partition, I think two questions loomed large in almost all of the historical scholarship. And those questions were why and when. Why did this happen? When did it become, if not inevitable, then likely? And in all of this work, there was an emphasis on the political leadership of India at that time. The question of blame often loomed large. Who was to blame for partition? Was it Jinnah? Was it Nehru? Was it the British? And often these are histories that are told in a somewhat ironic vein. That is to say that now we know what the actors at the time didn't in terms of the colossal consequences of their calculations and miscalculations. And the archives of this sort of history, which I think takes us through the 1990s, were the official archives of colonial India and of the Indian nationalist movement. There were a landmark series of edited documents that came out in the 1980s and 1990s. One from the British side was seven volumes known as The Transfer of Power in India. Of course, that title gives you some sense of the perspective which it is coming from. And a rival Indian set of documents in the 1990s and 2000s called Towards Freedom. And those, um, as an entry point into archives, of course, most of the historians working on this did uh, deep primary research in both national and provincial and indeed local archives, different parts of South Asia. But those official documents provided the core of the narrative that emerged from that sort of historical scholarship. It was an archive of speeches and letters of private and public calculations. It was only around the turn of this millennium that I think we saw a shift in the kinds of questions people were asking about partition towards experience. Questions about violence, about gender, about social suffering. Urvashi Butalia's 2000 work, The Other Side of Silence, I think was an important moment. It's not the only work by, by any means coming, around, coming out around that time, but it was an important moment in that shift. And the archive here emphasized testimony, memory, material and popular culture, photography. And I think it is that side of partition that the rest of this seminar will focus on, for which reason a lot of what I have to say today is drawing from that older scholarship uh, that focused on the question of causation, that focused on the political dimensions of this, um, particularly um, next week and, and Jennifer leading the seminar on migration, uh, Catherine Warner talking about gender and subsequent seminars on violence and urban space. These really capture where this field is at the moment, I think, in terms of the kinds of questions that historians are asking. It also suggests how far partition studies has gone beyond the discipline of history. This is now a subject that, that 
involves anthropologists, people working in public health, people working in studying humanitarian crises across cultures and continents. In a recent review essay on the literature on partition, Joya Chatterjee, who is herself a very important contributor to our understanding of partition in Bengal, has argued that the great gains in our understanding of partition, particularly over the last 20 years or so, have perhaps come at the cost of one sort of myopia. And that is the global and transnational dimensions of partition. Chatterjee argues that partition historians have perhaps seen partition too much in isolation from the broader histories of which it is a part. She points out that categories of citizenship, understandings of minorities, reverberated from South Asia across the region, often via the South Asian diaspora. I'm certainly very much in sympathy with that view. I'm not a historian of partition, but partition does shape and affect currents of migration that I've been interested in, particularly the migration of people from South Asia to Southeast Asia. I'm also interested in a part of the partition story that often gets forgotten, but which is of urgent contemporary relevance, and that is how Burma fits into this. Because amongst other things, the Second World War, uh, which I will suggest was a really crucial moment in shaping the political conditions of partition, is also, amongst other things, the point of origin of what is now the Rohingya crisis. And that these crises are absolutely interrelated uh, with one another. So I think there is a move in, in very recent scholarship to start to think about partition beyond South Asia or beyond the physical territory of South Asia. The why and the when are connected. Long-term structures versus contingent outcomes, social and intellectual history versus high politics. These are not mutually exclusive, but they are points of emphasis. And I think the most important advances in knowledge have come from attempts to articulate and negotiate between those different modes of explanation. So the bulk of this seminar series, I think, will present you the cutting edge of the newer work on partition, focused on its experiences of partition, memories of partition, the commemoration of partition, including this year, 70 years in. And today's session by way of introduction and background is, is perhaps a focus on the why and the when. I'd also like to start from the very beginning, opening up the terms that we use, including partition itself. The language that we use to describe this episode in South Asian history, not only partition, but a term like communalism. These are all entirely a product of history. They're the product of the history of the first part of the 20th century, both the imperial and the South Asian history of the first three or four decades of the 20th century. Partition in South Asia is not an isolated case. Decades earlier, the partition of Ireland ushered in a particular mode of governance in the British Empire, which aimed to engineer in an extremely compressed period of time nation states with clear and decisive ethnic or religious minorities out of previously very diverse colonial territories. It was implemented in Ireland, then in the 1940s in the Indian subcontinent, but also in Palestine. This is part of a global history of partition, and I think legal scholars are increasingly starting to make some of those connections, thinking about the legislative means by which refugee movements across these boundaries of partition have been managed in different societies. 
So I'd like, um, particularly in discussion, um, after a few preliminary remarks, to think about what we mean by communalism, where this term partition comes from, what other terms it might come at the expense of. But the biggest question we have to ask uh, as historians is how far back do we go? How far back do we need to go to understand what happens in 1947? And here I think there is a very sharp divergence between the answer that professional historians would give you and the answers that come out of social and collective memories in South Asia. One of the things that I think would have struck many people in this room about the ways in which people talk about partition in South Asia especially but not exclusively religiously inflected nationalists on both sides of the border, is just how far back they go when they begin this story. It goes back to the glories of the Mughal Empire, or to use the term that the British and then Hindu nationalists used, the Muslim invasions. These are very often long durée histories. These are often histories that blend into mythology, but they are very deep histories. Most modern historians would start no earlier than the late 18th century. But there too, I think there is a divide between those historians who would start this story in the late 18th century and those who start in the early 20th century. And I think that's not just a difference of periodization. It tends to map on a difference in interpretation. Those historians who go back to the late 18th century, that is to say, to the East India Company's conquest of Bengal and their expansion in the Indian subcontinent, tend to see partition as arising from a logic of colonialism which characterizes the way in which India is governed in the 19th century. Those who start in the early 20th century tend to emphasize the much shorter term high political calculations, decisions, miscalculations that provide, produce that particular outcome in the 1940s. To put it simply, perhaps bluntly, those who start the story in the early 20th century see partition probably as a much more contingent outcome, as something that could have been avoided, as something that was perhaps, if not accidental, then decreed very late in the day and the product of all sorts of contingent circumstances. Historians who trace that story much further back into the deep logic of colonialism, I don't think would see this as inevitable. In no sense would they see this as inevitable, but they would certainly see it as arising out of the structures of colonial rule, including the categories that the British used to rule India. So let me try to tack between those two different timescales in what I say, particularly as a way of opening that question up to all of you, which is how far back should we go? What periodization do we want to take? And how does that have implications for how we understand causation? How far was partition the culmination of longer-term trends within British colonial rule? How far did the colonial state contribute to even create communalism? At what point did communal division translate itself into the demand for separate statehood? The answer to that is quite late in the day. Was partition an inevitable accumulation, culmination of imperial and nationalist politics? Or was it an accidental solution that nobody willed? So let me start with those historians that would start with the East India Company. There's no question that the East India Company governed India as an agglomeration of communities, very often hierarchically ordered. Religious communities, but also caste communities, and those seen as somehow outside the indigenous 
ordering of South Asian society. I don't have time here to go into the question, the very important question of how far this was a pre-existing British vision that was imposed upon India and how far it was a vision that emerged from British encounters with a wide, sometimes conflicting range of Indian world views. And that's certainly something we can discuss um, in the conversation that follows this. That is an unsettled question in the historiography. Because bit by bit the East India Company usurped the place of a great Muslim empire, the East India Company's officers often held an ambivalent view of South Asia's Muslims. At times admiring of Muslim elites and courtly culture, but more often threatened by and worried by the prospect of resistance. It was in the course of the company's military conquest of Muslim domains and principalities that a series of tropes, a particular language, the language of fanaticism, for example, emerged to dominate the way that British officials discussed India's Muslims. The Indian Rebellion of 1857 brought that tension to a head. It was countered by brutal violence on the part of the British. But it also created a new incentive on the part of the British after 1857 to foster and work with a class of what they thought of as loyal, modern Muslim reformers. In the last part of the 19th century, I think the most fundamental way in which the colonial state hardened the lines of intercommunal difference was in its creation of a single overarching category of Indian Muslim in administration. And this has been explored by historians who've looked at how the colonial census worked, at how the colonial state counted and categorized its subjects. But above all, it comes out in the question of political representation. It is in the 1880s that the British start in a very limited way and at a very local level to open up a form of representative politics at local government level. And it was that which this category of Indian Muslim played into in orienting how the British governed its Indian subjects. I don't think I need to point out to this audience how a single category to describe a deeply diverse population that included groups as diverse as the Tamil-speaking Muslims in the coastal far south and those in the northwestern frontier had a particular political logic to it which was very often at odds with social reality and with lived experience. I think this did reflect a tendency that the British had to see their subjects in terms of immutable antagonistic groups, and indeed their frequent willingness to exploit these divisions for the purposes of identifying those who would work with them. Perhaps the clearest example of the British policies of divide and rule, to put it perhaps simplistically, was the attempt to partition the province of Bengal in 1905, very often thought of as the first of South Asia's partitions. It was justified on the grounds of administrative efficiency, but Lord Curzon's desire to partition Bengal had other ends in view. The British government tried to foster divisions between Hindu West Bengal and Muslim East Bengal, promising to the latter a restoration of past glories. But popular responses to British machinations themselves began to play into a logic of religious division. Not always consciously so, but the Swadeshi movement, which arose in part in response to the British partition of Bengal, 
was multifaceted. It was ideologically complex. I think our understanding of the Swadeshi movement has grown a lot more complex over the last 10 years, but it was primarily Hindu in its support base. This is not the same, and I can't think of many historians who would argue that this is the same as to argue that those divisions were set in stone by 1905. Very far from it. If anything, I think the biggest question is the double-edged, unpredictable effect of mass political mobilization on collective identities. And that is what we trace through the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, and it never cut in just one way. Initially, for example, Gandhi's mass non-cooperation movement was forged in alliance with Muslim political leaders. The Khilafat movement, which was launched to rally behind the Ottoman Caliph at the end of the First World War, but also to persist the persistence of wartime restrictions on freedom in India, was, many historians would see, as a high point of Hindu-Muslim political unity in the interwar years. But with the collapse of that campaign, tensions between communities on the ground very often increased. There were episodes of violence across the country, often provoked by very symbolic questions, cow or pig slaughter, or the coming together of class and religious tensions, such as between Muslim tenants and Hindu landlords or vice versa. But at no stage until the 1940s did this become a generalized communal conflict. These were often profoundly local issues. But the broadening of the political sphere, the increasing reach of an all-Indian news media, indeed a media that reached far beyond India, started to make such isolated episodes public events in a translocal sense. And I've been struck in my own research by uh, reading Indian diaspora newspapers published from places like Singapore and Penang in the 1920s and 30s, that you do start to have the syndication of news stories and the global circulation of news stories about very specific, very particular episodes of intercommunity violence in South Asia, giving them an attention and perhaps a significance that they certainly couldn't have had in an earlier moment. So partly this is about the expanding public sphere. This is about the expanding reach of political communications, but also about the global circulation of language, including the language of communalism, which is a category that wouldn't necessarily have made a lot of intuitive sense to people writing in the 1870s or the 1880s. As Indian nationalism came to be articulated in an increasingly Hindu language at many moments, including sometimes especially in Gandhi's hands, so the idea was expressed that India was composed of not one, but two nations. This so-called two-nation theory was not new. It has roots in the 19th century, but it gained a new sort of prominence and coherence between the wars. And I would just pause at this moment to perhaps just put out this question, which is the two-nation theory remains how large numbers of people in India and Pakistan see this history to this day. It is an idea that has had uh, deep longevity, and to some extent it's perhaps even an idea that has been re-energized after partition by educational curricula, by public history, by the public commemoration um, of these separate histories. So this is a powerful 
idea. It's one that historians have sometimes struggled with. Because just because, as professional historians, we do not find a point of view persuasive, that is not to say that it may not have a lot of social and cultural power. With the history of partition, perhaps more than any other particular history in the South Asian context, everyone has a view. And the authority that professional historians claim for themselves is very often severely limited and qualified. And perhaps it should be. I mean, that is another question I want to put out there. Who has the right to speak on these issues? What kinds of voices are being heard? Should we be gatekeepers? Or is that absolutely not our role? So the two-nation theory was not new in the 1920s and 30s, but it gained prominence and coherence. It gained prominence and coherence at a moment when nationalism was an increasingly global currency. After the First World War, with the creation of many small nations in Europe, the idea that every people, however they defined themselves, was in search of a nation state is something that was embedded within the League of Nations as an organization and in political discourse that crossed boundaries. Many people in this room would be the first to remind us, though, that we should be careful in identifying nationalism as the only or even the most powerful political ideology that was in circulation at that time. One of the most striking things about the public sphere in India and elsewhere in the 20s and 30s is how many different articulations of identity, how many different forms of belonging, and how many different kinds of political claims jostled for attention and press coverage and followers in the public sphere. This was a moment when the transnational left was in some ways increasingly powerful. This was a moment when various non-territorial imaginings of identity took hold in new ways, each of them using the same infrastructures of print, information, and communication that nationalists did. And many of you familiar with Benedict Anderson's famous argument that nationalism was a product in many ways of print capitalism. Recent work have suggested, well, so too were different forms of religious universalism, of secular radical politics, and networks that had nothing to do with a particularly nationalist framing. It was the poet and philosopher Muhammad Iqbal who called most publicly for the creation of a Muslim state in the northwest of India. It was in 1933 that a student at Cambridge University coined the word Pakistan, land of the pure. But as would become clear in the years after that, its content was deliberately open-ended. Was it an idea, a place, a polity, an aspiration? It was perhaps all of those things and more to diverse understandings and in diverse imaginaries. Some very interesting recent work has been done by historians including Caroline Stolter at Leiden University going back to the early maps that were published by these intellectuals, by these thinkers. Um, and these maps are striking because they're so diverse. The physical location of these different political imaginaries shifted and looks nothing like the outcomes uh, that we deal with from the 1940s onwards. The 1935 uh, British political reforms that came under the Government of India Act 
were the result of long drawn-out negotiations between the British and Indian nationalists and others. And let us not forget that this question of communal representation was by no means limited to the relations between Hindus and Muslims in India. That, for example, was the major point of conflict between Gandhi and V.R. Ambedkar, leader of India's Dalits. To what extent would Dalits too have separate electorates, separate representation, as the political sphere was broadened to larger electorates? And it is often in the interrelationship of uh, religious and other expressions of difference that the key political tensions of the 1930s, many of which we still live with in South Asia, emerged. The 1935 Government of India Act injected new life into Indian politics because of its expansion of the domain of electoral politics. In the 1937 elections, the Indian National Congress won unexpectedly large victories. The Muslim League, by contrast, was all but eliminated, showing that the category of Indian Muslim was an oversimplification. Given the differences of class, language, and political tradition which divided the subcontinent's Muslim populations. In the two largest provinces of British India, where Muslims were in a majority, for example, Punjab and Bengal, the League did very badly in those 1937 elections. Local parties, which as often spoke to class interests as religiously defined identities, were triumphant. However, the elections put the Congress politicians in power in many provinces, and they all too frequently behaved in a way that inspired very little confidence amongst India's Muslims. The experience of being ruled by Congress administrations between 1937 and 1940 left many Muslims in India worried about the prospect of a new Hindu Raj that might take the place of the British Raj. In many ways, I think the fundamental political shifts that made partition imaginable as a political solution lie in the impact that the Second World War had on India. As two very good and and rather different books by Yasmin Khan on the one hand and Srinath Raghavan on the other have shown, the war's impact on India has in fact been underplayed until recently. And both of them in their very different ways. Um, Yasmin Khan focuses more on the social history of the Second World War. Srinath Raghavan focuses more on the economic and political strategic history of the war. But they agree on one thing, which is that the war transformed India in ways that we haven't yet really seen. Ironically, one of the reasons they both think that we've neglected the effects of the Second World War on India is because we've been so fixated on explaining partition as the end point of that story. Both Raghavan and Khan point to all of the transformations that the war brought that in fact were distinct from partition, including economic transformations, but we can talk about that um, later. It is the direct impact of the war on on partition that I'll, I'll say a little bit more about now. First thing to bear in mind, the Indian army was augmented by a factor of 10 during the war to fight in North Africa, in Southeast Asia, all over the world, as well as to defend India from the Japanese attack that so many believed was coming in 1942. At the same time, Indian soldiers who were captured as prisoners of war by the Japanese in Southeast Asia, a section of those soldiers uh, formed the Indian National Army to fight alongside the Japanese against the British and Allied forces in the war. And I think there are two key shifts that the war brings. One is militarization, and the second is a fundamental shift in political representation. In India, the war saw a general militarization of society, 
and particularly of extremist groups. Cautious support was in fact given to the war effort by both right-wing Hindu organizations and by conservative Muslim organizations. The more militant wing of the Muslim League, for example. The Hindu Mahasabha declared during the war that if Hindus are armed, trained and equipped in their millions, then and then alone shall they be in a position to defend their hearths and homes from the ravages of war and suppress any internal anarchy. Strange times to be reading that. V. Savarkar, head of the RSS, Hindu supremacist group linked to the Mahasabha, called for a militarization of the Hindus. The Muslim League too began martial drills. Their youth corps, conspicuously armed, would often march through Indian towns and cities. The Punjab in particular emerged as one of the most heavily militarized societies anywhere in the world. By the end of the war, one third of the eligible male population of Punjab had served in the British army. Demobilized soldiers flooded back into Punjab in 1945 and 46, and many of them brought weapons with them. So in that very tangible sense, the impact of the war is something that has probably been underestimated until this recent scholarship by Raghavan Khan and others in terms of the social conditions that allowed political tensions to spill over into violence on quite the scale that it did around partition. The second fundamental transformation the war brought was a political one. It led to the militarization of communal difference, but perhaps more importantly, it reshaped these questions. Who was in a position to speak for whom? Who was in a position to negotiate for what after the war was over? How had the war changed the way the world perceived them and their cause? In India, the war transformed the question of who was in a position to speak. In 1939, when the British government declared war on behalf of India, the Congress, after much internal debate, resigned all of the ministries that they had been governing since the elections of 1937. One of the products of this was the recovery revival of the Muslim League from a position of electoral defeat in 1937 to a position whereby Muhammad Ali Jinnah could claim to be, in Aisha Jalal's words, the sole spokesman of India's Muslims. Jinnah was the one easily identified leader of what could be seen in the British imagination as still a unitary community. And Jinnah made best use of this, seeing that the Congress absence from the political arena afforded him an opportunity for the resurrection of the Floundering League. In 1940, the Muslim League passed what is known as the Pakistan Resolution. Historians above all, Jalal, think that at that stage it was little more than a bargaining chip in Jinnah's hands, not a clearly formulated proposal. There was no sense of where, let alone what, this Pakistan would be. It was not necessarily yet imagined as a distinct certainly not as an independent territory. We need to be very careful not to project back from 1946 and 47 to say that this was somehow inevitable by 1940. Nothing at all was certain at this stage. And that's the thing that I think recent historical scholarship has conveyed, just the sense of flux and uncertainty about the political forms that would emerge when this conflict ended. And until 1942, late 1942 into 1943, it was not clear who was going to win this war. 
It was not clear what global geopolitics would look like at the war's end. Following failed negotiations with the British government, the Congress launched in August 1942 what was known as the Quit India Movement. It was the largest anti-colonial uprising India had seen in almost a century, perhaps ever. And the government moved immediately to arrest the Congress leadership. But what was striking about the Quit India Movement is that it built up a, mom it built up a momentum of its own. This was often a profoundly spontaneous local series of uprisings many of which were fed by rumours of what was going on in the war, many of which were fed by the tales brought to India's borders by Indian refugees who walked back from Burma, of whom there were about 500,000 who left by foot after Japanese bombardment of Rangoon began, many of whom were denied places on ships by racist colonial officials. So at the refugee camps that formed on India's borders with Burma, news and rumours, news of the collapse of British power in Burma, in Malaya and elsewhere, fed the millenarian expectations that the Quit India movement would bring about a reversal of the political order. In a matter of weeks, the British government repressed this movement using aerial bombardment, baton charges, mass arrests, and this is very important. The Congress leadership sat out the rest of the war in prison, played no role in the early post-war planning that by 1944 the British were indulged in when it became clearer to them that they would probably triumph in that conflict. Negotiations opened again in 1945, the war's end, and by this point the Muslim League had moved into a position where they could legitimately claim to speak for India's Muslims. A British cabinet mission in 1946 proposed the shape of an independent India, which would be a complex three-tiered federation. Arguably, they came close to offering Jinnah what he wanted, which was a guarantee that the central government of an independent India would not be dominated by Hindus or even by the Congress party in particular. But this proposal by this point worried Congress leaders like Nehru, who wanted above all a strong centralized state with which to pursue their vision of industrialization and development, but also those in the Congress of whom there were many who were religious nationalists, who were on the Hindu right, who increasingly, Joya Chatterjee's work on Bengal makes this especially clear, by 1946-47 were willing to sacrifice East Bengal in order to stay in power in the West. In a speech in July 1946, Nehru rejected the idea of grouped provinces under a weak federal government. And what followed up from that point was a spiral of violence on the ground which supercharged high political events. And this is crucial, I think, greatly accelerated the timetable for independence.